When Mike Schmidt was elected our district attorney in 2020, he said, Multnomah County has just embraced the most progressive DA platform that this state has ever seen. But since then, he's faced a near-perfect storm as the pandemic, a backlog of cases, and the opioid crisis sent crime in the city skyrocketing. And now special interest groups have targeted him as the face of Portland's perceived lawlessness. And I mean that quite literally. People for Portland, a local advocacy group, paid for a four-story billboard downtown which took aim at the city's record crime and low prosecution rates under Schmidt's tenure. It read, Portland is a Schmidt show. And this created some awkward Uber commute situations for Schmidt since the billboard was also strategically positioned near his workplace. And so I was like, well, screw it. I'm just going to talk to this Uber driver. And so I said, hey, have you noticed that billboard up there? And he goes, oh, yeah, I see it all the time. People are always talking about it. And I go, hey, well, that's me. I'm Mike Schmidt. (laughs) And he goes, holy smokes, you're Mike Schmidt? He says, well, that's a great billboard. How much did it cost you? And I was like, no, it's I didn't pay for that. It's not it's not it's not good. And, and it literally took me like two minutes to explain to him that it's, you know, being paid for as an attack on me. And he's like, oh, they messed up. I thought it was for you. <laughs> In the Uber driver's defense, it was a really good picture of Schmidt. Today on CityCast Portland, Mike Schmidt is joining us to talk about his three-year anniversary as our district attorney and how his strategy as the region's top prosecutor has evolved against a myriad of challenges. It's Tuesday, August 8th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. You were voted in as the most progressive district attorney uh, the county had ever seen. You had, and you had over 75% of the vote, which I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure what else Portland could unite over, like 75%. Like you could have just been like, I will buy everyone around. And I think you would have probably gotten less than <laughs> <laughs> that. But I think we've seen a pretty big shift in public perceptions around crime in the year since. Do you think your criminal justice reform platform is serving Portland? Well, thanks, Claudia. Thanks for having me. I appreciate Uh, talking about this, you know, I think it's been a very challenging uh, three years because while I was elected, I won in the primary, uh, which was May 19th of 2020. George Floyd was murdered one week later. Portland erupted into protests. Uh, The district attorney at the time resigned. The chief of police resigned. Uh, So the governor called me and said, hey, are you willing to start on August 1st instead of January 1st? Uh, which put my first day in office on day 60 of the protests uh, that were going on. And it has just been, uh, it's been a challenging three years, crisis after crisis from lack of defense attorneys, lack of uh, state hospital resources, uh, spike in gun violence. Um, And, you know, some of these things are also have played out nationally, of course, as the pandemic rippled through our entire world. But it's been a challenging three years. So to your question about is my criminal justice reform philosophy still uh, serving the community, I think it is. And I think that for me, reform is often conflated with things like being soft on crime. You hear that a lot. Uh, But reform is really not about that at all. Uh, Reform is how do we craft an intervention that is most likely to succeed in somebody not committing more crimes in the future. And it's a recognition that a approach of more and more incarceration actually 
can have the opposite effect in communities, that we can hold people accountable, and I believe in holding people accountable when they victimize somebody in our community or commit crimes, but that doesn't have to mean lock them up, throw away the key, because what that does is it hollows out communities. It takes parents away from children. It takes children away from parents. It challenges the fabric of a lot of the neighborhoods that are already most marginalized, and it it doesn't necessarily make us safer. The United States is the most incarcerated nation in the world. We're not the safest. So for me, criminal justice reform and public safety, they go hand in hand. Uh, you know, there's some people, and this is not new, that want to conflate criminal justice reform uh, with not holding people accountable or, or not caring about uh, crime. And it, it just couldn't be further from the truth. You know, you do have a ton of authority to set criminal justice policies for our region, but I actually don't think many people understand exactly what the DA does. How would you describe your role? Yeah. So uh, I appreciate the question because I hear from from people all the time. I went to a, um, a business uh, leaders listening session up in St. John's. And what I heard from those uh, community members, those business owners, was frustration over our 911 system uh, that is not, mm-hmm. not responsive, that people are on hold for long wait times, that the uh, police response is uh, not adequate for the needs of that community, frequently having only two officers to patrol all of North Portland, meaning, again, long wait times for when and if police officers uh, are even able to show up. And then frequently, by the time they are able to show up, what people hear is, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you at this point. And so I hear all of those frustrations. And then the next thing is people jump to the conclusion, well, Mike, you can fix this. Like you're the district attorney, fix these things. But it truly is. People use the phrase criminal justice system. And it's a system. It's an ecosystem. For example, uh, 911 is actually run by uh, a bureau called BOEC, the Bureau of Emergency Communications, uh, which is operated and overseen by one of the city commissioners. The mayor oversees the police and police response. The county oversees the jail uh, through the sheriff, and I oversee prosecution services. Uh, So for things to work, for people to be uh, held accountable, for their behavior to be interdicted, all of those systems have to coordinate and work together. It's really like a baton being handed off from runner to runner. And we grab the baton uh, after the police officers uh, make an arrest. Uh, Without an arrest, without evidence, there is no prosecution. There's nothing for us to do. And so I think the misunderstanding is this idea that uh, there's, you know, kind of one ring to rule them all, that one person is in charge of our criminal justice system. Uh, But it takes all of the partners working together collaboratively to address the challenges that we're facing. And for us, it's prosecution. And you look at our prosecution rates, meaning of the cases that police officers make an arrest and send a case to our office, they're as high or higher than they've ever been almost across every single category. So our prosecutors are doing their jobs. They have higher caseloads than they've ever had. They show up on weekends. I come in here, we do pizza parties and, and, and bring food to you know, help people who are 
deciding to be away from their families, working on Saturdays and Sundays on cases. They are dedicated public servants, and they're working incredibly hard in this office. I'm very proud of the work that we're doing. You you spoke about going to the St. John's community meeting. You know, we recently had uh, a co-owner of the Leisure Public House who actually attended that meeting, and she felt that when she went there, she didn't know who was listening, if anything was going to happen. And I understand that you're the DA, you're just like, you need the criminals to come to you in order for you to prosecute. But then you're also saying that there's record number of of clearances. Is there a difference? Because we've seen a huge drop in the number of criminal trials taking place in Multnomah County. They're like, there was an average of 25 or 30 criminal trials per week before the pandemic, and that dropped to 8.3 as of August 2022. So how would, are you saying that's different from, from clearance rates or? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so there are clearance rates uh, would be of the times that people report a crime happening. So a business owner gets their window smashed out. They call the police and say, hey, uh, I'd like to report that somebody uh, vandalized my business. The clearance rate would be in what percentage of all of those reports that the police take is an arrest made. That's a clearance rate. And so the how what percentage do police officers actually make an arrest? I don't have the stats for vandalism off the top of my head, but I do know the stats for theft. Of all the thefts reported in Multnomah County, less than 3% end up in an arrest. So a clearance rate of less than 3%. Now, when I say prosecution rates, now we're talking about of the cases where an arrest is made, so that 3%, what percentage is my office reviewing the cases uh, that the police officers are sending to us and then uh, deciding that we are able to move forward with a prosecution? And our prosecution rates for theft cases in 2023 is 80%. Uh, which is higher than it's ever been. Uh, and, you know, during the pandemic, you talked about the number of trials uh, being a, a lot lower. And absolutely true. If you look into 2020, 2021, there were almost zero trials happening per week. Very rare. Uh, 2022, it's been increasing. 2023, I think probably the numbers are continuing to go up. But another confounding factor in the mix is lack of defense attorneys. And so we're now seeing cases being dismissed by the court because the state, which is uh, the defense attorney services are funded out of Salem, out of a state agency called the Oregon Public Defense Services, OPDS. They fund all of our defense services for Multnomah County. And right now we do not have adequate defense attorneys. So again, another confounding factor for us being able to get cases to trial and resolved. I'm glad you brought the public defender shortage because I've i been reading up on it and you've called the shortage of public defenders an urgent threat to public safety. And last year you started publishing a weekly list of cases that circuit court judges have dismissed due to this, this shortage. Are you still doing that, by the way? We are. We put out the list uh, every single week and we'll continue to do so as long as cases are still being dismissed for lack of a public defender being appointed. All right, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, let's talk about the Portland Police Bureau. I have another question concerning uh, the police department and your department. 
one of the first positions that you took as a, a as a DA was choosing not to prosecute many of the protesters that were arrested during the 2020 racial justice protests. And I understand that you came through and there was a backlog. And so I'm not privy to knowing why that decision was made, if it was because of the backlog or if because you're just like, what is this? There's no evidence here or whatever. But anecdotally, of course, we all heard that the police officers weren't thrilled with that idea. What's your relationship with uh, rank and file police officers like today? Do you, my, my question, and I'm not trying to bury the lead here, Mike, is like wondering if that set a tone. You know, it it really was, um, in my mind, an impossible place to be thrust into. So like I said, I started on day 60 of the protests. So exactly pretty much halfway through what they would end up being. Um, so we've already had 60 days of some pretty awful things happening in terms of the Justice Center uh, being set on fire um, and really being uh, shut down. You know, we had businesses that had their windows smashed and in and, and the very first days there, there were some looting and things of that nature. Uh, there also was a strategy of mass arrests um, to just get people out of the street. And I saw many cases uh, coming over our desks that were of that nature, of uh, people uh, being told to go home. And if they didn't go home fast enough, uh, they could end up getting arrested kind of in a uh, in a rush of uh, of police officers clearing the streets. So I had all kinds of different types of cases sitting on my desk. Mm -hmm. um, I had, the number was 550 uh, protest-related cases on my first day in office where the previous DA had not made a charging decision on those cases. So I had 550 cases. And where I drew the line, and I think this is often misremembered or, or purposefully uh, conflated, uh, is I said, look, if you are in the streets and you're holding a sign and you didn't go home when they told you to go home, I'm not going to prosecute those cases. If, however, you were damaging uh, property, if you were lighting things on fire, if we can prove that you're smashing windows, if you're looting, if you're hurting anybody, if you're attacking somebody, assaulting somebody, we will prosecute those cases. So really the line drawing was right at that. Are you doing things that are causing damage or did you just not obey the order to leave when that order was given. And I've heard from a lot of community members that said, hey, it was chaotic. It was confusing. Uh, they may have been telling me to leave, but I didn't even know that. But I got arrested for for not leaving. So looking historically at protest prosecutions in Multnomah County and the city of Portland, we have seen over and over again that juries don't convict and they don't like prosecutions brought where somebody's just in the street holding up a sign. And there's mm -hmm. a whole host of acquittals that you can look back uh, over the years. So to me, that's a waste of resources. Uh, when I had so many cases during a pandemic that we had to prioritize. Also, it felt not right to me to use the criminal justice system to shut down people who we're protesting against how the criminal justice system has operated in this community for decades. Now, when mm -hmm. that protest crossed the line into violence or damage, well, then it's clear to me that, you know, prosecution is the right way to go. But if it's not that, if it really is, hey, you didn't leave fast enough, then, yeah, I thought that was a bad use of resources. It did set uh, me off on a on tough footing uh, with the, the police officers, for sure. Uh, and that's something mm -hmm. that you know, we may 
not see eye to eye on in terms of what my approach was. But that being said, uh, you know, I've been working since, and now it's been three years to, to make that relationship uh, better. In fact, just yesterday, I spent my entire day on a ride along uh, with a, a behavioral health unit officer and his partner, who is a, um, a clinician. And I got to, you know, go out with them and, and see what they see as they're dealing with a fentanyl crisis on our streets when they're dealing with, you know, this new synthetic methamphetamine that is causing psychosis in people. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm actively out there uh, trying to, to understand um, how I can be helpful, how we can work together. Uh, we've just recently established our auto theft task force, our retail theft task force that's in partnership uh, with all the local law enforcement agencies. So what I'd say is, is we got off to a, a rocky start uh, by virtue of a pretty unprecedented, actually a very unprecedented situation for, for Portland and mm -hmm. Multnomah County. But we're working on, uh, you know, I've been working on that relationship ever since. And, and there's a lot of really amazing uh, police officers out there like the, the folks that I got to ride along with yesterday that are doing really heartfelt work. And I uh, super appreciate uh, what they're doing for our community. And I think as they see more of me and, and they see that we're prosecuting the cases that, that they're sending us, uh, the relationship just keeps getting better. You know, uh, you are in the business of prosecution, but your office has been really ambitious about doing projects beyond simply prosecuting. You know, you've been getting out into the community, you know, like the St. John's meeting we we discussed, and you're starting task forces, like you just mentioned, you know, the car retail theft crackdown. And you recently had a pretty large win in the auto theft task force. Can you tell me just a little bit about, for those who haven't heard the news, uh, what ended up happening? Yeah, well, uh, first and foremost, we got some really great news looking at 2023 data and realizing that car thefts are at a two-year low uh, in our community, which is great. And, you know, we are, of course, a part of that, but can't take credit for, for that reduction uh, completely. But it's through partnership, through good, amazing uh, police work that's happening out of East Precinct. Setting up this task force really is the next level where we have a prosecutor who is out there in the field working with police officers. And what we know is if we prioritize our investigatory and prosecutorial resources towards individuals who are engaged in prolific automobile thefts. So the, the folks that are really driving the numbers, either because they're working and, and running chop shops that are, are cutting up cars, and so they're doing a, a bigger volume. If we can prioritize uh, those individuals and in getting them off our streets, we're gonna have an outsized uh, reduction. It's gonna be a more impactful prosecution. Uh, in terms of decreasing the number of car thefts that are happening in our community. So this past weekend, exactly right, uh, our task force model got together. They identified one such individual who uh, we believe, you know, allegedly, of course, you know, this individual has rights and they're in our system. So nothing is proven at this point. But allegedly, we believe that was involved in a high number of stolen cars ending up uh, around their vicinity that we think that they're involved in. Uh, and so we prioritized that intervention and uh, we're successful in making an arrest and and hopefully that will be a big uh, continuation of seeing the car stolen car numbers drop in our community right I'd like to go back to these meetings that you've been attending what have you heard in those meetings that's changing the way you are prosecuting I'm specifically wondering about 
this rampant vandalism and break-ins that smaller businesses are are hitting. I understand. I mean, we if you know if anyone's been listening, we've we've talked about car thefts, you know, retail theft, uh, murder. You have you you cover it all, but. I feel like day to day when people walk down the street and they see these small businesses hit, it's kind of like a morale thing where you're just like, where do I live? Like, what hellhole is this? Why can't we have nice things, Mike? You know? Um, <laughs> yeah. What have you heard? And like, is, has anything changed for you with what you're hearing? Well, I think what has changed, you know, over the three years is is as hard as this may be to believe. And, you know, I know that I just drove in this morning and I, uh, you know, noticed uh, a business that had a window smashed. And and to me too, it's kind of a gut punch. It's kind of like, oh man, I can't believe that those, that business owner, that those folks have to deal with that. They have to clean up the glass. Like it does hurt. It hurts to see our community struggle. I also, what I've been hearing and talking to a lot of business owners is that they, they're seeing improvement. They're seeing things get better. So that's good. For me and our job, what we're focusing on is when we have, uh, when we're able to get the, you know, the arrest, the evidence, and so we know who did it. Because you know, frequently we don't know um, if somebody in a in a mask uh, walks down a random street and smashes some windows. Uh, if no arrest is ever made, there's no prosecution that can ever be brought. Uh, but when we do know who it is, you know, what can we do to stop that behavior? Uh, so we'll issue charges. And I'll tell you frequently what we're seeing um, with a lot of people, especially in the instance of window smashing, is not necessarily people going in and, and burglarizing or robbing the places. It really is just vandalism. And the folks that we see that are engaged in this are frequently mentally ill frequently uh, having acute intoxication uh, through the methamphetamine, especially um, that's happening. And so the question for us is, you know, what can we do to interdict this person's behavior? And are there resources like mental health court, sometimes the state hospital, drug treatment court, you know, are there things that we can get people to so that they can have a better shot of not um, doing those types of things in our community anymore. Uh, but it really needs, again, the entire system to work for us to be able to focus our resources on those individuals. But when we find those cases, we are absolutely uh, prosecuting them and trying to hold the people accountable, but also get them hopefully connected to the resources that will prevent that from happening anymore. Right. I think that what you described is like, if, if, if things worked, then things would work. You know, that's, that's, I think that would be hard to hear as a small business owner who's already feeling pretty alone. I'm just not hearing from them that the city is doing much to do that thing that you've been doing with other uh, forms of crime, going upstream and trying to prevent, you know. Um, a lot of these people are feeling like they have to do all the detective work. They have to be the ones that, who basically are like, this person, this person did it right here, you know. And I know that the police have a, a ton on their on, on their plate as well. I don't know. I don't know, Mike. It just seems a little dire when you when you kind of shake it down. Because I mean, what's going on with the lack of prosecutors now? I mean, is that being addressed? So um, when I I started in this agency as an intern in 2007, and so I started, and there were over a hundred attorneys 
in Multnomah County District Attorney's Office. When I took over for the previous district attorney, uh, there were 72. So in the intervening, what was that, 13 years between the time I was an intern to the time I was elected, uh, we had about a 30% reduction in prosecutorial workforce. So that's a real challenge. Uh, I've been working with the county commission uh, since I've been the DA. And for the first time in decades, uh, year over year, they continue to invest more resources in this office. Uh, I believe we're up to approximately 85 uh, attorneys now. So we're building it back, um, not back to where we were even in 2007, but we're building it back. We certainly need to remain on that trajectory. We need to continue to add resources. But unlike in other areas that, you know, pretty much every industry during the pandemic was hit by labor shortages, a lot of turnover. Uh, and we certainly weren't immune to that either. Uh, we had a our fair share of turnover, but we never had vacancies. We are always able to fill our positions. They may be uh, individuals who are newer uh, with less experience, and there's always you know uh, challenges in wrapping uh, ramping people up and getting them going. Uh, there's there's opportunity cost there, but we always had people in the positions. So I'm proud that we are growing the office. We did an independent outside assessment, they call a Kate's weight analysis, uh, that estimates that we need 110 prosecutors in this agency to serve the, the needs of this community. Uh, so we still have a ways to go in terms of um, just handling the workload that we currently have, uh, which is why our attorneys are working 50, 60, sometimes 70 hours, because they're carrying those heavy caseloads. But they also, I think we are seeing for the first time in a long time, investments in this agency that are making a difference, that are increasing our ability and our resources uh, to tackle some of these challenges that we're facing. Thank you. Seriously, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy day to you know, answer all these questions that I'm sure you've been answering in your head for the entire three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd love to continue this conversation. You know, I know you you have a lot more to do, but I know more questions will come up. And of course, you're welcome to come on anytime. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me and, and getting this, the conversation going. I think, you know, it's the old, the more you know uh, slogan, right? Uh, the more we all know, yeah. the better that we can uh, be to work together to make things in our community, the community we want it to be. And now for your microdose of news. Median home prices in Portland are down. Willamette Week reported that from July 2022, the median price of a home sold in the Portland metro area fell 2.8% to $549,990 from $566,000 a year ago. According to data from Regional Multiple Listing Service, which tracks real estate sales, this is similar to national trends as the 30-year mortgage rate has risen to 6.9%. And the Oregonian reports because of failures in the DMV's record keeping, at least 80 people in Washington County and 30 people in Clackamas County were wrongfully convicted of driving with a suspended license since 2010. In Columbia County, a man served a year in jail over a wrongful conviction. The problem stems from the DMV failing to properly record the start and end dates for license suspensions, incorrectly marking eligible drivers as ineligible. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. 
That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>